0: Speak the charm of may charm of may charm of may charm. There
1: will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten, when wizards will rule the
0: world. This is the Arnamancy podcast, exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back to the Arnomancy podcast. I have with me today Andrew B. Watt. He's a blogger in the northeastern U.S., blogging at andrewbwatt.com. He and I first talked about sewing and magic on episode 48 of My Alchemical Bromance, and there will be a link to that episode in the show notes. And it was during that episode that he convinced me that I should make my magical robe. There's a link to that article in the show notes, too. Andrew has been a magician slightly longer than I have, and in this episode we are going to discuss all of the training, the non-magical training, that goes into being a quality magician and why it's so important. Hi, Andrew.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm great. It's. I'm really excited about talking to you again. I'm really glad that I got a hold of you, and I mean, you know, we talk a lot, but sometimes... So one of us says something that just sparks a ton of awesome conversation, and I'm I'm glad that we sort of came across came upon this uh, topic, um, which I think I know we're going to be skipping out of order a little bit, but it was sort of prompted by you mentioning uh, uh, Book 4, Chapter 5 of the Picatrix, which has this crazy list of like, if you want to be a magician, you also have to do all of this other stuff. Um, which which uh which then got us talking about like you know why do we need these things and what's happening in the future that's going to require us to do this stuff uh so do you want to talk about let's get started the competing visions of magicians of the future yeah.
2: the competing visions of the of the future and and from specifically from a magical point of view
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm
2: you We're sort of thinking about this issue quite a bit because you went to see Gordon White and Austin Kopic at As Above in Portland.
0: Yeah, and you know, um, I'm not—I don't follow Gordon White really uh, uh, a whole lot. You know, I, I I listen to Rune Soup and I read his blog sometimes, but I'm not a Rune Soup premium member, so I don't get a lot of his additional material. So it was interesting to be sitting in as above with so many, um, well, I guess we should tell people as above was, uh, Gordon White and Austin Copic uh, having a little sort of like mini seminar in, in Portland, Oregon. Um, and they talked a lot about like, you know, what's the future looking like and what's, what's all this stuff happening. And I guess the thing that was really interesting to me was they started off with sort of this discussion on um, free will and determinism, but then they got into things where they were making like predictions, you know, predictions of things like future dates. You know, Gordon White would be like, in 2038, this and this and this will have happened. And in this year, this and this and this will have happened. And, and for me, that's always kind of a red flag, you know, because when somebody's making those sorts of predictions, I'm like, hold on a second. How seriously are we supposed to take this? You know, is he just, is he just talking out of his ass or is he really serious about these dates? Um, and it's nice, you know, Gordon White does have a very optimistic view of the future, uh, but only if we work towards it, you know, I mean, there's still work that has to be done. It doesn't automatically go optimism.
2: And on the other hand, we can look at a, a magician with a very pessimistic view of the future. We can look at John Michael Greer,
1: mm-hmm. who
2: thinks that we are at the very beginning of a very long staircase down into a world lit only by fire.
0: Yeah, yeah, because in John Michael Greer's vision we've got like peak oil happening, we have uh you know, resources being exhausted, we've got you know, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's sort of like we've screwed up and we don't have a we don't have a path of fixing stuff.
2: Right. We've screwed up, we don't have a path to fix stuff and there's no plan B. That's certainly part of his overall vision. Right. So on the one hand we have Gordon White who in his public remarks and in some to some degree in his private remarks has said he thinks that humanity will be a multiplanetary species before the the middle of this century mm-hmm. if if it isn't already a factually evident thing he expects that will happen sometime in the next 30-ish years and on the other hand we have John Michael Greer, who says, one, you're never getting off of this planet and you're stuck here. Two, the world of the future is looking considerably less rosy than the world of the past, at least in part because we have squandered the resources of, of Earth and we have not used coal, coal, oil, and natural gas in any way, shape, or form as efficiently and as responsibly as we should. <laughs> and then, well, in a sense, yeah. we have we have Austin Coppock himself, who is offering a vision that's based in astrology, centered around the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction cycle.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting one too. So, so the astrological vision, you know, or, or sort of like trying to predict the future with astrology. Uh, diminishes our agency quite a bit. Uh, And in a way, like, maybe that's fair. Like, it's difficult to predict or to see how much the agency of the individual or even individuals working together can have a huge effect on sort of grand global affairs. Um, You know, you can see it happen. I I was just watching – there's a Netflix documentary called Explained, um, that okay. had, they had an episode about uh, water shortage, you know, because clean water and potable water is something that we're constantly struggling with. And they were using as an example, um, God, was it Johannesburg? I think it was Johannesburg, South Africa, that was facing like this, what they were calling like day zero. At day zero, they're going to run out of potable water for the city and they're just going to have to shut stuff down. Um, and through the efforts of, the people in the city, they've managed to push that back and push it back and push it back. So it's possible. There are times when, if we're made aware of ecological disaster or upcoming like resource disaster, you know, humans have, humans have made change.
2: They have, and we can identify places. I'm not sure if it's Johannesburg or Cape town. I know Cape town had, significant issues with water.
0: It was Cape Town then. I knew it was it, one it you, was one of those I was like fifty
2: fifty. <laughs> it's possible that we've heard about two different cities and we should be careful about overlapping them. Yes. Coming back to Austin's vision, Austin has is drawing I think on a ninth century A D Author by the name of Mashallah. Now, I have not read Mashallah on the great conjunction cycles, but this ninth century Persian slash Arabic author noted that every 20 years there's a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, mm-hmm. which means that year zero they conjunct, year five they're square to one another, year 10 they are opposed to one another In year 15 they are at s- square again and then you're back to year 0 at the conjunction mm-hmm. but that every 200-ish years or so, so roughly every 10 conjunctions they start cycling in a different trio of elemental signs and we're about to move from a set of elemental signs that are largely Earth. So Taurus, Virgo, Capricorn into 10-ish cycles that are going to be exclusively in air signs. Mm -hmm. And you and I, before the show began, actually looked at a list together that the first of the air conjunctions was in 1980, most recently, and then the one that was in 2000 was in Taurus, And then the one in December of 2020 is going to be in Aquarius. And then they are with one exception, all in air signs until 2219.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, so tell us a little bit, like, what do you think, what do air signs typically um, govern or what does it mean? Like, you know, some, uh, you know uh, Saturn has dominion in, in one of the air signs in Aquarius, and does Jupiter have a happy time in any air signs? I can't even remember. That
2: is a very good question, and I'll answer that one in a minute. But okay. before we go to that, I'm going to back up a little bit, because I realized that I have a pretty clear way of explaining this to folks Okay, that may make a fair bit of sense. And that's this. That... I was a school teacher for 20 years Mm -hmm. in middle school and I taught world history, which meant that every September, it was the dawn of human history. It was Australopithecus and Neanderthal man and it was the discovery of fire and the invention of tools and that's what we did every September. And then October rolled around and it was Mesopotamia. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: then it was November and it was egypt and then it was december and it was prehistoric greece and then it was december it was january after the holiday break and february and it was classical greece and then march was ancient rome april was the roman empire and the fall of rome and the rise of christianity and may was something unusual either it was india or it was china sometimes it was both and then the school year would be over there'd be a break and you'd be right back to the dawn of man
1: Mm -hmm.
2: so for the student history is experienced linearly but for the teacher it's experienced cyclically
0: right oh that's (laughs) yeah okay yeah okay
2: So that my experience was literally that time cycled constantly between the beginning of humanity and an inflection point. And of course, as a world historian, you teach the rise of civilization, a triumph, the creation of a cultural legacy which is going to get passed on and packaged in some way for the next culture, and then inevitable collapse and decline usually for similar reasons in a lot of different cases. You run out of critical resources, the elites take too much power and don't share enough with the intermediate classes, whatever the reasons, and Mm -hmm. things fall apart. So I look at this list of astrological dates that Austin is commenting on, and, and I think about the time periods that are involved. The last time that we moved from an Earth age into an Air age was eleven eighty six, November eighth, November eleven eight November eighth, eleven eighty six, eight ten a.m. Because if you're going to start a brand new age, you should get started early in the morning.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so eleven eighty six. Let's see. That's. Um... That's, uh, just before the sacking of Constantinople, right?
2: It's just before the sacking of Constantinople. It is, which is, uh, 1204 AD, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's about the time, I think it's maybe, that might actually be the year or near the year that, um, Frederick Barbarossa, uh, drowned in a river, um, So it was contentious. You had the whole Roman empire was going on. You had the... the, I mean, in Europe, it was contentious. In Asia, you had... Like, the Mongol Empire, I think, was going on then?
2: The Mongol Empire is beginning to assemble itself out on the steppe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the period that we're looking at for the the last air age, 1186 to... 1425 involves a whole lot of mongol hordes overrunning a whole lot of places poland in 1241 ad uh i did look up the date for china but certainly by 1226 i think that most of china is under mongol rule you're looking at at a radical reshifting of how society works And Mm -hmm. you're looking at a radical shift in what kinds of societies hold power. You've seen medieval portraiture and medieval illustrations, illuminations, really, of women wearing tall conical hats in French manuscripts.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's actually imitating Mongol court style.
0: Hmm. I did not know that.
2: Just as modern business people in Hong Kong and Shanghai wear business suits and dress like Westerners
1: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, because the West has triumphed and because men's suits are now cheaply produced in all of the, the easiest places to find tailoring, you get people wearing Mongol costume in 12th century, 13th century France because they're the dominant power.
0: So then, so this is the age that started in, like, 1980, uh, where the West, you know, the Western business suit is basically your Mongol hat.
2: Well, I would say that the the Western suit Mm -hmm. really has its origins at the start of the last age, the Earth Age, around 1802.
0: Yeah, that's probably accurate. That was the age of... uh, George III, beau Brummel. Um, yeah, Western... Uh, Western... Or, you know, like rich people's outfits stopped including as much face paint and powdered wigs. and uh, Things started to get a little bit more modest, not as many bright colors. Uh, he started to wear darker suits. And oh my god, we are... We're clothes nerds, aren't we? Are we just going <laughs> <laughs> to...
2: Let us assume for the moment uh-huh. that that looking at fashion trends is is a reasonable way of approaching how huge planets like Jupiter and Saturn manifest in the world. The previous age before that, that began in 1603 and went until 1802, was a fire age. And you look at that and it's it's 200 years of, a lot of really constant very deliberate violence but it is also oh, yeah. an age of flamboyant clothing
0: well actually it's an age of pretty stark differences because at least in Europe you had not only incredibly flamboyant clothing but you also had the rise of Puritans so you had um, you had the sort of like Puritan mode of dress that was like black and plain and so you had sort of two things going on you know like you compare right. uh you compare like the Huguenots and and Dutch dress to what the French were doing, and you get really different things.
2: You do, in fact, get really different things. And a lot of fiery clashes. And a lot of fiery clashes because it needs to be an age of extremes. Mm-hmm. And then you come into an earth age, and suddenly we're getting a, an industrial revolution, and instead of having kings and generals and war heroes be the great figures of the age, we're getting industrialists being recognized and celebrated. You know, my textbook Mm -hmm. when I taught middle school history had as many, uh, what is it? Stephen Fultons in it and, uh, Henry Ford's in it as it did Eisenhower's and Patton's. Mm. Yep. Yep. Hmm. So then you you move into a fire, you move from a fire age into an earth age. Clothing becomes much more sober. It becomes much more generalized. We figure out how to make everything much more cheaply. Men's suits become standardized in, in blue, gray, black, and not much else. Pinstripes, if you're really feeling fancy, which is not very much. Mm -hmm. clothing becomes staid and sober for everybody women's dress has been much more muted in the last 200 years as well
0: yeah i mean the whole first half of that you have victorian dress which is very modest clothing covering up everything (laughs) well that's an interesting way to look at it i i mean i it's hard to it's hard to know without like really plotting stuff out if we're if we're confirmation biasing this like that's the problem that i had sort of listening to austin talk about it like he would he would pick out specific years from this chart and be like oh yeah that's the year that blah 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 happened and i just remember thinking and being like i have an, i have an opposite argument for that like uh, you're 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 cherry picking something that supports your argument and ignoring this other thing that in my mind, was way more important or influential, but um, and I think that that's something that you that it's really easy to run into that when you're looking at um, uh, astrology to make these sort of like grand predictions or even past predictions. Uh, Absolutely, you know, yeah. And another thing, uh, I can't remember if it was Austin or Gordon who said this, but they were like, "When Saturn is conjunct Pluto, famous prisons are being built." And I was like, "What?" So I went and looked. I looked up as many prisons as I could think of, and I looked up lists of famous prisons, and then I sort of like tracked down when they were built, and none of it, none of it matched. <laughs> so were, I couldn't find a single one that was built during a um, Saturn-Pluto conjunction. So I don't know even what so. That was the about. reference
2: is actually Saturn in Capricorn, and I don't know if it's true or not.
0: Certainly oh. not
2: the case that all prisons are built when Saturn is in Capricorn, but certainly the the famous ones or the radical changes in type
0: mm. is the... Cl- so let me make a so note on that.
2: I want to leave that aside, though, and I want to come back to the, the notion that we have three very different competing visions of how the future is going to go. Austin's version is sort of a middle ground. It's saying... Power is going to be exercised radically different. Mm -hmm. Different imperial powers are going to be in charge because whenever there's a change in elemental age, the way that that empire exercises power changes. I think that you and I demonstrated not so much that, that specific fashions can be assigned to specific eras of time, But I do note that the 1980s and 1990s were a lot more brightly colored and things were, if you will, a lot more breezy because the Mm -hmm. internet came online. We had an age of internet commerce before it all sort of came crashing down. We had some significant shifts in how power was being exercised in the world. Mm -hmm. And then we had... 9-11, 9-11, which was about a year after the the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Taurus in May of 2000. And we had 20 years of Earth power being exercised. You know, this, this has been an age of fracking, it has been an age of Wars in the Middle East and largely ground wars.
0: Oh, and like, uh, heavy metals the, being extracted everywhere and powering pretty much all of our e-commerce stuff. Like the economy is is being run by things made out of rare and heavy metals now.
2: That's true. Hmm. We have this vi- this vision, and I think, in a sense, that Gor- that not Gordon uh, Austin's vision of a world where power is exercised very differently in the next two hundred years than it has been exercised in the last 200 years is relevant Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because on the one hand we have John Michael Greer saying the next 200 years are going to be a long, slow decline into a world that's lit by wood fires and people shiver around campfires and hearths. And there's no, there's essentially no high tech, existence anymore except maybe for a few hand-cranked computers mm-hmm. 200 years from now 300 years from now and on the other hand you have gordon saying well we're going to be a multiplanetary civilization and then the question becomes okay we think we're ma- magicians or we think we're becoming magicians that's the world that we're going to have to live in for the next 30 to 60 years mm-hmm. how should we live and what do we need to know
0: yeah and that's that is an interesting question yeah uh when you first brought up that chapter the picatrix to me oh okay we should should we talk a little bit about that chapter the picatrix so uh for those of you listening at home pull out your picatrix uh, book four chapter five so this chapter the picatrix basically says if you want to be doing magic you can't just sit around and study magic stuff. There's everything. You have to study all the sorts of stuff. And it breaks everything down into like 10 categories, I think. And the first category has uh, agriculture, sea travel, governing people. Um, then there's the second category is uh, leading soldiers, commanding armies. Uh, oh, yeah. Calling animals and birds and deceiving them, <laughs> which is great uh then the civilized arts by which humankind is sustained and that includes um like the uh the uh, trivium such as you know grammar and language laws uh, commerce um then there's uh, arithmetic and geometry then there's dialectic by which he really means logic right okay And then there's medicine, then there's natural philosophy, Uh, and then metaphysics. So it's kind of an interesting set of things. You know, it it makes sense. Like, he's basically saying you're not going to be able to do everything with magic, and you're not going to be super useful unless you know stuff about everything. But it also, you know, the Picatrix was, what, written in, like, 1100 or something like that? And it's sort of right on the verge of that time where you had this sort of, like, flowering of the renaissance it's sort of during i mean i guess it was probably put together during um, a renaissance in the middle east but a lot of these a lot the you know there's that whole idea of pan sophia like the ability to acquire and store all human knowledge um, which uh, i mean i know by the time you get to the european renaissance you see this Happening a lot, and mostly with people that we associate with being like Renaissance magicians, John D. your your yeah. guy and my guy Giordano Bruno. Heck yeah, heck even uh, Ficino and and uh, and all of our you know Northern Italian friends. They were all doing this sorts of stuff. Uh, and the
2: translation of the Corpus Hermeticum. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so it's basically like. There's a there's a tendency nowadays for people who practice magic to sort of be like, "Ooh, I'm doing magic. This is super cool," uh, without realize, but, but having sort of a different view of what magic is because magic is part of natural philosophy, right? Like magic is basically like the occult arts that control the natural that control nature. Yeah, so it's sort of like, how do we apply this today? Like. I'm never going to be – I hope I'm never in a position where I'm governing a kingdom, for instance. That sounds that sounds like a lot of people made a poor decision if that happened. <laughs> um,
2: and yet, and yet, if we look back at 1186 to 1405, mm-hmm. this is one of the major eras of feudalism worldwide, that the Mongols are – for some of that time are ruling china largely by installing local governors and and literally riding in and chopping off the governor's head if taxes aren't delivered on time. Yeah. It is it is the era of decentralization in Japan where Japan's central government under the emperors goes through a period of breakdown. You have shoguns, you have samurai that are controlling the countryside and the The Great Lords, the Great Houses are divvying up the islands amongst themselves and uh and establishing dependent Lords under them.
1: Mm-hmm. same
2: thing is happening in britain, and essentially you have an era of violent warfare that is not controlled by any sort of central state. And it's yeah. not to say that there are kings of France and that there aren't kings of Britain, but the kings of France and Britain are not enormously powerful during this time period.
0: Well, and the way that the Mongols set up uh, sort of like positions of power and stuff like they had a they had a weird meritocracy thing where they, they would uh, promote non-Mongols and they didn't really care about religion or country of origin. You could end up in, in a minister's position just based on your merit.
2: Right. And it is apparently an era in which tradespeople and merchants can travel quite far and quite widely and make enormous fortunes. Witness Marco Polo, witness Matteo Ricci, witness a number of missions to China in order to find out what's going on from Europe. Fewer missions going in the other direction, but Mm -hmm. the Mongols also conquered Poland. So it's not like... It's not like there weren't Mongols a whole lot closer to home and there may be other missions that we're not as familiar with.
0: Right. So, uh, all right. Well, then if we're sort of taking a look at this this concept of new or unpredictable ways of governance and, and leadership happening. So if we're taking a look at sort of this new era as one of um, uh, unpredictable government or unpredictable leadership or – uh, power structures perhaps fluctuating. I mean, if you look, you know, if uh, if John Michael Greer's vision is correct and our power structures are going to fall apart because we run out of, you know, fossil fuels or things happen that disrupt communication or ease ease of travel, uh, you're going to need people who are really good at sort of being leaders in crises or people who are going to be really good at kind of like improvising new technology. Or improvising old technology, um, yeah, or
2: recovering old technology, or making reasonable guesses about how to invent something that sort of looks like old technology but isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if uh, if Austin is right and we're going to new planets, you know, we never really know who's going to be in charge then either.
2: That's true, and you don't know what technologies you're going to need on a new planet until you get there and you figure out what's missing.
0: Yeah. So colonizing the future might be unpredictable enough that learning things like agriculture, sea travel, and the governing of people is probably really important. Um and which which is interesting, especially when you look at how some of the uh you know, the the Renaissance pan Sophiaists uh were doing stuff. You know, you had like Savonar or, or you had a, uh, you know, like Savonarola ending up in charge of Florence. You had um, Machiavelli working on his stuff, or even like Bruno's images being used to control cities.
2: Yes, hmm. and I think that I think that all of that is relevant. I mean, Gordon's group, the Rune Soup Premium members, just did a, a terrific course on tarot cards. Mm-hmm. And you think about the fact that tarot cards developed sort of near the end of the last air age in the late, late 1300s, early 1400s, as I think when the first sets of these cards come into existence, certainly by the 1450s, they're in full swing. But that means that you have printing of images. And we do know that some books were produced without movable type. That was Gutenberg's thing, 1447, 1453, Mm -hmm. thereabouts. But we do know that that block prints were being produced on paper and that stories, pictures, images of the saints were being produced. We know that block printing was a huge thing in China. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Not, again, with movable type, but certainly basic printed images being reproduced using a press
0: well china did develop movable type around the same time didn't they
2: they did i think that it wound up not being a a viable methodology because they couldn't produce enough characters to matter
0: <laughs> well maybe they should have had a better alphabet <laughs> um yeah yeah on uh, the
2: on the other hand my friend jean just recently told me the of uh, story of his first visit to china when a uh his tour guide took him into a museum and showed him a a stele a carved stone tablet set up as a memorial from about 700 bc and the guy could read it that that there was enough continuity in characters between then and now that 2,700 years later, this guy was capable of reading a tablet and sort of getting the gist of what it was saying.
0: Well, that makes me jealous.
2: <laughs> it makes me jealous too, that you can have that kind of continuity. If your if your quote unquote alphabet, your writing system tracks whole words or whole ideas mm-hmm. instead of, simply the phonetic sound of a word so our system seems to be really well designed for fast transmission of information and theirs seems to be designed for long-term storage
0: yeah you know that's something that um we will run into problems with uh, digital storage is not long-term
2: <laughs> <laughs> no it's not uh, I have- The other week, I found an old three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk from the age of removable (laughs) storage, and I doubt I could even find a working drive, much less recover the information in a readable format.
0: I do have a working floppy drive right here, but... I think it's plugged into a computer that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but that's a, that's a problem. Like CDs degrade, hard drives don't last forever. Like uh, the way that we do storage now, we have no idea how permanent it is. Even things like thumb drives aren't permanent. You know, they they lose charge or they degrade over time. So that's definitely going to be a problem. And in John Michael Greer's future, that's going to be a really bad problem. Um Especially the more
2: books that shift over to being in digital-only formats or books that are never issued in print format.
0: Oh, yeah. Or even like um, podcasts. There won't be podcasts anymore.
2: Yeah, you've chosen the wrong medium, my friend. (laughs) Hey,
0: I go where people will listen. That's true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... So, what do you think? Like, what are how how do you come up with a list of uh, of skills that would be useful in either one of those situations? I do think leadership is a good one. Public speaking. It's, I
2: I hate to plug Toastmasters, which is part of my more mundane life, but I'm a high ranking person, a volunteer still within Toastmasters. For or are
0: you a grand Western- Toastmaster?
2: I'm not a grand toastmaster. I'm not I don't even have the highest award level in the organization, but uh-huh. I'm currently serving as a as a district director for program quality, which is a high muckety-muck over about 140 clubs in Western New England.
0: <laughs> yeah, I but also just, would plug Toastmasters. I I was a member of Toastmasters for about 6 months, I think in 99 or 2000 before I became a master of a Masonic Lodge. So, I mean, those are
2: excellent cross training. Oh, it's, it's, (laughs) yeah,
0: it is excellent cross training. Actually, even getting involved in the leadership of like local civic groups is a really good idea because you at least learn what it's like to organize people. People are difficult to organize.
2: People are very difficult to organize and they're difficult to persuade and getting practiced at persuading people is valuable, Mm -hmm. regardless of what age you live
0: in. Which means that it's probably also useful to study things like psychology and uh, philosophy. Like, you need to know logic.
2: You need logic, you need philosophy, and putting in a plug for our buddy Giordano Bruno, being able to call stories to mind and tell the appropriate story or have the appropriate, appropriate Scientific or literary reference at the right moment is hugely useful.
0: Yes, there is. In fact, you know, um, it's one of the things that uh, Plato tries to warn us about. You know, if we don't keep things in our memory, then they are not actually part of us.
2: I think that that's true.
0: Yeah, So, so yeah, like learning how to use your mind and memorizing stuff I think is really good. Uh, I mean, it's, it's basically like anything that's going to, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even know that we, I think we've covered like a a number of the different topics that would be useful there, but, um, but yeah, so like, you know, the idea of like learning agriculture, you know, I don't know how, I mean, I can grow a house plant, but I don't know how well I could do growing food plants.
2: My experience of growing food plants is that it is very easy to get them to take root, to flower, to come out of the ground, to put forth leaves. They are, in fact, designed to do that. What it is very (laughs) difficult to do is protect those plants from all of the other things that want to eat them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess one thing that makes me happy to see is... um, stuff like uh, the Viridis Geni, Genii conference. Do you know about that?
2: Yes, this was yeah. the uh, the herbal conference, the plant conference out your way in Oregon.
0: Right, but it's very well attended, and it's attended by magicians. So, like, right there you have magicians who are learning sort of a combination of hopefully some sort of agricultural skill, but it's definitely, um, you know, herbal medicine which might be useful, but I guess we—that probably means we're also going to need magicians who are doctors. Can you? Um, ima- <laughs> sorry, <laughs> go ahead. I was just thinking. I mean, medical science has advanced a lot, but can you imagine the days when oh, it must have been very difficult, where all of your, all of your, mid, all of your doctors were also astrologers? I I can
2: sort of get a a taste of that I mm-hmm. had a doctor for a while who was in his 70s mm-hmm. and I would come in to see him with some sort of a chest complaint or a, you know a, a throat or a nose issue I've never had any significant sickness in my life
1: Knock uh, I onward. take that-
2: I I take that back. <laughs> uh, I had rheumatic fever as a child. So oh I'll, yeah, that's. I'll, I'll circle back to that because I think it's relevant. But the the piece that was important about this guy was that he would put his stethoscope over lung, over heart, over spleen, over pancreas, and he had a technique of sort of flicking his finger. And I guess it's called palpation. He was able to sort of thump my my various body parts. And then he was listening for the echoes. Oh, and he yay. was also getting a sense of of whether the organ that he was thumping was hard or soft, whether it was wiggly and jelloy, or whether it was stiff and hard. Hmm. And he was using the sound and also the feeling of the organs inside of the belly to get a sense of, of what kinds of complaints I was having. Now I only had him for, for a few years, but he essentially did all sorts of diagnostic tests using simply his, his fingers and his ears and his eyes. Wow. And he would only order a test once he had some idea of, what it was that he was looking for. He was looking for something that would confirm or disprove his diagnosis. But he already was able to tell me, this is the thing that I'm looking for. This is this is the, the result that we're looking for. This is the thing that we are hoping it's not. Mm-hmm. And every other doctor that I've ever had Looked me in the eye, looked in my ears, and said, "Take this pill; it'll make you feel better."
0: You know, um, John Michael Greer. Uh, you know, I, I used to. Uh, he was basically one of my teachers a long time ago, and I was his neighbor for a bit, and then we lived very close together, or very, you know, we 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 lived in like neighboring towns. So, one year, this is ages ago. This must have been two thousand five. I'm going to guess 2005. But, um, I got very ill in the throat. I got, like, first of all, a horrible sore throat, which turned into, like, full blown, weird ass, like, viral laryngitis. Like, I could not talk. And this went on for about a month. Um, and I remember, like, I'd been visiting John Michael Gere pretty regularly, and I got either uh, probably an email. I probably got an email from him where he's like, Eric, I haven't heard from you in weeks. What's going on? And I was like, dude, I can't talk. <laughs> so he invited me over and we you know he asked me some questions and i whispered some answers and uh, at the time i was a pretty avid pipe smoker and he's like have you been smoking i'm like no smoking i haven't had any whiskey i haven't had anything he's like this sounds miserable so (laughs) he went into some um it was a victorian era uh herbalism book like it was just herbal cures from Victorian England and apparently there was this whole tradition of like putting herbs in your tobacco pipe uh, and they would help so he looked stuff up he's like you know go get this herb and go get this herb and mix it with some tobacco and you're going to want to put this in a pipe that you're probably never going to want to smoke again and then just smoke it I'm like (laughs) (laughs) alright And the herbs that he picked, uh, I cannot remember what they were. I think one of them was... Uh, it's was...
2: just this row. Well. We don't want to diagnose people oh, accidentally yeah. on the show. But...
0: I will say one of the herbs, they, they were so pungent and so gnarly smelling. And when I smoked them, they were so bad. So I smoked these herbs. I like smoked a pipe in the morning. I smoked a pipe in the evening. And like the next day, my voice came back. <laughs>
2: So, you killed whatever whatever <laughs> was in that killed off whatever it was. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh
0: yeah, yeah. It was um it was a gnarly mixture. <laughs> but um so I guess learning some medicine is probably a good idea.
2: <laughs> yes. And in the state of the world today, you have to be very careful about Diagnosing people. I mean, you Mm -hmm. tell me this story, and I think, okay, that's what he did. He looked up in a book, and he he didn't put his hands on you. He wasn't diagnosing you. He wasn't examining you. He simply said, you know, I'm looking up in this book, and these herbs in a hundred-year-old pre-antibiotics book say. (laughs) that smoking these herbs is likely to fix whatever it is that ails you. Right. But I don't know. And if you decide to try this, go try this. But he left that entirely up to you. He didn't give you a prescription. He didn't
0: he didn't give do me any the herbs. Yeah. 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 He
2: didn't give you the herbs. He said here's what a century old book that I happen to have on my shelf has to say about this.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, like I had been to doctors, right. I had been diagnosed, I... I'd gotten all this stuff and they'd given me like weird shit to inhale and like, uh, you know, steroids and, you know, junk that just, it didn't, it wasn't doing anything like nothing was working. Um, so when he gave me that, I was sort of like, you know, nothing else is working. This is like my last resort. Uh, and who knows, maybe my body just was in such shock at this. It's like, okay, 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 fine, I'm healing.
2: <laughs> my cousin was
0: dealing with
2: with some problem when the two of us went, were in our 20s. And she went to the doctor, and the doctor gave her a prescription for a bunch of pills that she was taking. and uh, And her mom, who was really into all sorts of alternative weirdness at the time, took her to see some sort of an herbalist, and he prescribed a bunch of different weird herbs. Mm -hmm. And I asked my cousin, how are you doing? And she said, I don't know whether it's the stuff from the Western doctor or the stuff from... The herbalist across town, but my God, I feel great! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was thrilled <laughs> that that all sorts of problems that seemed to be insurmountable about her health were being resolved, and she didn't have any idea which it was. And at that point, she didn't care. All she knew was that she was getting better, and eventually, the problem vanished between the, the two different kinds of treatments.
0: <laughs> so maybe uh, maybe the safest thing to advise people to do in this case you know, is take some first aid classes and learn CPR.
2: Take some first aid classes, learn CPR. Make friends if with a
0: doctor. You,
2: if you make friends with a doctor, have some hundred-year-old books on your shelves.
0: Yeah, because you never know.
2: <laughs> you might have to look something up. Right. Right. and and you don't know what
0: well i do have an encyclopedia of medical astrology
2: <laughs> <laughs> i a few years ago there was a a landmark edition of avicenna's canon of medicine issued in english uh-huh and i have a copy of that on my bookshelf and i i read my way through it very slowly and that was that was that's actually I think relevant to what it means to be a magician. The mm-hmm. Avicenna uh, was probably the great physician of the early Middle Ages. I think he lived around 900 AD. Off the top of my head, that would be the date I'd pick. And he has a six-part definition of what it means to be healthy. He says your digestion has to be good, your mm-hmm. skin has to be clear. Your dreams have to be good. Mm. You shouldn't have any trouble uh, with defecation or urination. Mm -hmm. You should have a healthy appetite and you should get good sleep. Did I say that already?
0: You said good dreams.
2: Good dreams. Good dreams, good sleep. Uh, I think those two are paired together. And the last one is that there should be no obvious confusion of mind.
0: Ah, I like that.
2: And that the idea that there was, in fact, a definition of health Uh was awesome, number one. But number two was that the goal of any medical treatment should be to restore that state. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to restore that state, then don't interfere until you do have some idea of what to do. Yeah. And I thought that was really quite brilliant that there was, that it wasn't just that this vague Hippocratic oath, which I know isn't actually vague, that there's an actual text of the Hippocratic oath, but that that the doctor is aiming at a specific goal and has that specific goal in mind and, and treats on that basis.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting um, philosophy or interesting approach. Um, all right. So then, okay, I think we've covered medicine pretty well. Like there are certain things that, there, because, you know, honestly, it, when it comes to preparing skills for being a magician, there are certain things that are just entire careers on their own right? Like, it's true. It's probably a good idea. You know, somebody comes to you with a problem where they're like, you know, uh, you have to know when you can't treat something where the, where the limits of your skills are. So you have to be able to refer somebody for sure. Right. So I think that's just something you have to be prepared for.
2: There was a conversation on Twitter not too long ago. And I, uh, I'm not going to be able to pull up her name at the moment, but there was an astrologer who said that if you're an, if you're an acting astrologer, you should have a a list of qualified, licensed psychotherapists. You should have the number for the suicide hotline. You should have a qualified doctor, some mental health professionals, essentially on a worksheet that you can hand out to any client whenever you need to, and say this is really beyond my skill or my level of concern uh you really need to go and and chat with somebody yeah and there have been a couple of times when i've been doing divinations or fortune telling for people when i really wish that i had had that list i'm sorry to say that i still don't have a list <laughs> but i clearly need to assemble one
0: i feel like maybe um maybe that might be something to take away from uh From the Picatrix list, even, is that uh, there are parts in here where somebody might come to you with a problem where you're kind of like, well, I can help you with this. But shouldn't you also have a list of people to refer out? You should be building a network. That's true. Um, And yeah, it's
2: really... Do need a a network I mean this is one of the things I watched I was not in the audience for as above, so I mm-hmm. don't even know which was the back of your head from the camera but
0: no well, I didn't sit in front of the camera
2: well you're in you're <laughs> in luck then i I didn't see your bald head and you didn't see mine <laughs> <laughs>
0: i sat uh, but, I sat behind Marcus McCoy
2: <laughs> so but you, one of the things that both yeah. of them said. Uh both during the presentation and afterwards, was you have to find the others where you are. And if you're not here in this gathering, in this room, we didn't miss you at all. You missed us.
0: Yeah, honestly, that is one of the things that I wrote down. Um, I think this was uh, Gordon who said there's more power in 5 to 10 people who know each other and work together personally than in a 50,000 member facebook group i would agree with that and i thought that was There's a really that was a really insightful more thing to be
2: done, more to be done even with eight people holding space for one another and helping one another through challenges mm-hmm. who know one another face to face than there is in 50,000 people or even in 2000 people who get together a few times a year,
0: which honestly takes us right back to the first two Picatrix categories. One of which includes the governing of people and the other one has the leading of soldiers and commanding armies and stuff. I mean, we, you know, we talked about both of those as sort of being, you know, like the Toastmasters thing, like learning how to speak and learning how to use your logic and things like uh, and learning to think in legal categories. Mm-hmm. And learning how to get out and communicate with people. I think that's a big, important one. Like, you don't want to be... You're not going to survive uh, the coming... Um, what's the opposite of an apocalypse? A propocalypse? You're not going to survive either of the coming scenarios uh, if you're, like, the uh, the creepy, you know, witch on the edge of town or the... The weird, crusty, cunning man who doesn't have any friends and, you know, lives in a hedge. Hedge. <laughs> well, let's back that up. All right. You are not
2: – if there is a, a radical shift in how power works, mm-hmm. if you are the creepy witch on the edge of town whose business is entirely aesthetics, then that's not a good recipe for survival, I'm reminded of the 1990, was it 1994 genocide in Rwanda? Mm-hmm. I read a, an account of it afterwards, and I, a, the initial story was that that the majority group was massacring the minority group, but at the level of the local community, it turned out not to be the case that elderly women who owned what the other villagers thought of as too much land Mm -hmm. were just as frequently targeted as old men who had a plot of land who happened to belong to the, the minority group. If, if you had something that everybody else wanted, Mm -hmm. you're a target thing. You were a target.
0: Right. Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's possible that that's going to be the case. You know, I mean, as we're looking at, as we're looking at sort of like unrest between uh, economic classes grow, it's the it's the haves who are going to be the target, not the have. We,
2: we can look back not one air age, but two air ages to the era that began in three thirty two AD on November twenty eighth.
0: The fall of the Roman Empire?
2: The fall of the Roman
0: Empire. The Visigoths uh, sacking Rome. When was that? That was like the 400s. Well, no, that was. 410 AD. Yeah, 410 AD. Um, I mean, that was uh, the era of uh, Constantine and. Christianity sort of uh, getting the upper hold. The the pagan and Roman temples that had all the money were being like ripped to pieces. The the last remnants of the Library of Alexandria being I don't know whatever the hell happened to it. Like it was yeah that was that was a period when um, when the Haves lost their junk.
2: And again, we're looking at an era in a shift of power, mm-hmm. right? And in an era of shifting power. The thing that's really interesting is in this era from 332 AD up to 551 AD with some little chunks here in the air age up until 670 AD. Mm -hmm. I don't know very much about what's going on in the rest of the world, but I spent every March and April on this
0: (laughs) for 20 years. Yeah, it's uh,
2: Charlemagne... Charlemagne is later. He's eight hundred A.D.
0: Oh right. Oh, but isn't the doesn't Islam happen in here?
2: I believe the Hijra occurs in six six sixty one A.D. Is that right? No, so it's right. earlier than that. It might be as early as six thirty
0: two. Well, AD. in any case, it's near. It's right at the end of that air era, and right at the beginning of the of the water era.
2: That's right. I I have to think about this. When is the date?
0: It's, I don't know, I always get the, that mixed but up. The conquest
2: of Spain is traditionally dated to seven hundred eleven mm-hmm. to seven thirty two AD. And it's about a hundred years before that, and I but it's not exactly a hundred years, it's more like ninety years, and I'm gonna guess six twenty two AD.
0: Okay. We can we can look it up later or we can have um uh audience members call in and chastise us for having bad history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's there. Yeah. All right, let's let's um let's fast forward a little bit because we had you had some other questions here that was sort of like you know we're talking about you know if you want to be a magician. I I, I sort of like the way you look at this like the you know what overlap of skills or what skills do you need in order to be a, provi- a like a professional magician or at least a talented amateur. And I think you know we have sort of covered you should be learning as much as you possibly can. You know, it's depending on like what sort of magic you're going to be doing for people. But you you need to know a little bit about, you know, the modern technology that goes into the areas that you're working on. Right. So a really good example would be like Jason Miller's financial sorcery book. Right. He's basically saying if you're going to do money magic, you have to learn how money works first. Right. Yes. And
2: that is very likely to be true. Regardless of whether or not you have a world like Gordon's, which is multiplanetary and we're somehow traveling between planets or even between solar systems,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or if you're living in a world like John Michael Greer's future vision of an ecotechnic society where essentially we have no higher-order sources of energy, no fossil mm-hmm. fuels, probably no nuclear power.
0: Right. So in that situation... If you want, you know, if you want to, like, hunt game, you're still going to need to know how game works. You can't just randomly make some talisman and hope for the best. You're still, you know, it's something that we talk about all the time with magic. Like, magic doesn't do the work for you. It just sort of improves prob- probability or helps you along. Like, things are still going to follow the path of least resistance in the world. So you can't operate out of ignorance in your areas,
2: that's true. And you also need to know how to survive. Like the skills that he's talking about are the skills of leading and organizing people. Mm-hmm. The the skills of management of materials and and purpose. I mean, there's a whole piece in here in in Picatrix specifically about knowing how to lift heavy objects or to survey or to move water from one place to another.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is
2: freaking hard,
0: by the way. It is hard. (laughs) It is hard, but it's also also something that uh, humans have learned how to do. So you can at least study it. (laughs) You can
2: at least study it.
0: Yeah, fire building, another good one. Like, you should learn how to build fires. Yeah, there's a book by...
2: There's a book by Kevin Dunn. I've worked my way through about half of it called Caveman Chemistry.
0: Ooh. That sounds interesting.
2: It's 28 projects. I think it's 28 on how to become sufficiently skilled in chemistry through working your way through projects that are designed to teach you how chemistry works by making stuff. Mm -hmm. So one of the first projects in the book is... This is how to make fire using a bow drill. Right. And there's there's another project in there about how to nap flint, which left me with bloody hands and cut up fingers for about 10 days.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> hopefully you will never need that skill in real life.
2: <laughs> but the chapter on fermentation inside of a 2 liter coke bottle, that was kind of useful.
0: Oh yeah, and I yeah, results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is uh, that is a, a helpful thing. Um, yeah, that was on your list of things, like how do we, you know, so do we learn the seven liberal arts? Do we learn medicine, law, seafaring? Like what, you know, how do we know? Uh, I think fermentation is an incredibly useful skill um, in any situation, just because... You know, there, well, I mean, there's a few different types of fermentation. There's the creation of alcohol, but then there's also like the pickling of things, you know, the preservation of food. Um, that's without, true. And that's going to be useful in a situation. I could see that being useful in any situation.
2: One of the examples of this is that I have my grandfather's canning notebook. Mm-hmm. And I know very little about canning. It's not something that I've ever taken up before. But one of the things that is in his marinara sauce recipe is put a tablespoon of, uh, not a tablespoon, a teaspoon of citric acid into each batch of tomato sauce that you make, Mm -hmm. because botulism spores lurk in the skins and near the surface of tomatoes. Yes. And I hadn't known that, but apparently botulism spores are capable of surviving the canning process, but they are not capable of surviving the canning process plus citric acid.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of tricks about that kind of stuff. So if you're learning agriculture, uh, that's just half the battle, right? Because once you've got all of your fruits and vegetables and stuff, they don't last long. And so canning and pickling and fermentation is how you make sure that you've got food the rest of the time. Yeah. Um,
2: so, can we talk about can we talk about a, a a sort of a complicated and difficult and painful example?
0: Yes. Uh
2: and this is one that I struggle with a great deal as a magician. Okay. Because as a former school teacher, I'm very much aware of this issue and and it is on my mind particularly as an American school teacher or former American school teacher. And that is should a magician know how to use weapons personally, or do they just need to know a little bit about tactics and overall strategy?
0: That's a good question. I think everybody should probably take a gun safety class if they live in the United States. Yes. Um, I think aside from that, that's a, that's a very personal question. And, um, you know, like I, for one, I don't know that I would ever use a weapon on another person.
2: And I'm all too aware that if you're the sort of person who knows how to use a weapon in an age when social rules are breaking down, there is a very, very high likelihood of being unwillingly drafted into somebody or another's personal army. Yeah. On the other hand, if you know nothing about weapons personally, or you don't know how to use them, or you're not prepared to wield them, but you have a number of other very useful skills, you're likely to be kept out of the direct line of combat. And yet, Gandalf has Glamdring. He certainly has a, a sword and knows how to use it. He uses words far more frequently, but he's not prepared to shirk his duty when it comes to actually being in battle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. He's also some sort of like immortal God thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: He has definitive advantages that we don't
0: as human beings. He also has a magic horse. I mean, that would be cool. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty sure that shadow facts is not showing up for me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: probably not
2: (laughs) he's not Um, in this particular world
0: yeah i mean that's a tough one you know uh i i don't know how to answer that i guess i'm not really thinking of of like individual survivalist stuff as much as i am like being useful in your group or being useful to whatever society turns into like i guess it's hard for me to imagine total societal collapse i mean i guess in 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 john michael greer's future there really could be total societal collapse and things could be descending into barbarism and and general awfulness um and if that happens it's i'm probably not going to do super well (laughs) Uh, it's it's
2: certainly the case that if we look back to air ages we see the foundation of the benedictines Mm-hmm. If we go back one air age, we see at the very near the beginning of that period the Cistercian revival, and near the middle we see the emergence of of the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and near the end I think is no the Jesuits are later, yeah. But both the Franciscans and the Dominicans emerge sort of in the middle of the last air age, and the Benedictines themselves come out near the the middle of. Of the last air age, and a guy by the name of Cassiodorus is trying to found a proto-Christian monastery in Sicily or southern Italy, right about three fifty three sixty A.D. Mm-hmm. So the monast and the Desert Fathers get active at about two hundred A.D., even just before the air age begins.
0: Great. Um, Yeah, I, I'd be a monk.
2: <laughs> That's <sounds laughs> good. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't so much thinking about being a monk as recognizing that the monks have a sense of commonality of property and commonality of purpose and the sharing of both knowledge and expertise. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way that they get out of the cycle of violence themselves, is that they settle in places that nobody else wants to settle. Mm-hmm. And they have the expertise and the knowledge that everybody else in the world have, doesn't have.
0: Right. If you know your agriculture and you know your construction and you know all that stuff, then you are able to settle where nobody else wants to settle.
2: It's true. The hmm. The other wizard from literature that comes to mind is the wizard Dalbin from Floyd Alexander's Pridane series, which maybe hmm. you read when you were a kid but it's I retelling it. of Welsh <sighs> legends
0: oh yes yes I read many of those but when I was young I don't remember <laughs> that's where the black cauldron comes from
2: yes it does
0: Yeah, that, I don't remember but, those stories very well
2: uh, Dalbin and, and his uh, deputy assistant pig keeper live sort of on the edges of everything Mm. And, uh and people come to him like that's in a sense the the demonstration that you're doing things right is are people coming to you are they seeking you out and seeking your advice face to face right you know if you're always in in black and sort of spouting dark things and drawing weird sigils in the dirt then maybe people are coming to you once in a while but In a sense, the mark of a real wizard, Picatrix style is, are people coming to you for help with all kinds of problems? Yeah. Are they coming to you for help with business problems, political problems, social problems? That a big portion of what a real magician does is dispense advice and change people's minds.
0: I think that's a very insightful way to look at it. I think that that's, um, you know, I mean, you you compare it to sort of... uh... You know, like the court magician or whatever, like they're there to answer questions about all sorts of topics, give advice on all sorts of topics, and yeah, change minds. That's, I I like that, uh, I like that look at it a lot.
2: What is Alistair Crowley's definition of of magic? It's to cause change in conformity with will. Cause and cause changes in consciousness in in accordance with will. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to change
0: someone's mind? To change their consciousness, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So so basically, (laughs) a magician needs to be a Johannes factotum. Like, they need to have a wide variety of skills, and you should be collecting knowledge all the time. Like, a magician needs to have, you know, you know you're doing the magic thing right when people do come to you for advice on weird stuff. That's right. Uh, I guess then, you know, in terms of being a professional magician, you probably want to start branching out in your knowledge and not just spend all of your time reading the Picatrix, but also, you know, (laughs) get a... Even though it's so rivetingly fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I think I've read it like three times now. I should probably, you know go do something else. <laughs> um, but, you know, read read a book on business. Read, uh, join a Toastmasters club. Um, you know, learn how to identify plants or grow tomatoes or do some canning or basically be curious.
2: Yeah, and I think that in large measure, a lot of the, the grimoires are saying, go out and learn all of these skills so that you have a hazel wand that is cut at this very precise time or you know how to draw this weird diagram that happens to overlay over a a particular triangle or a square and it has to be exactly square and like there's geometry and mathematics built into that but there's also enough astronomy so that you know whether it's the right time there's also making the knife Mm-hmm. blacksmithing take a class in blacksmithing or bookbinding or like i think that's that's part of what the author of picatrix is getting at i think this is partly what austin is getting at and i think that this is partly what john michael greer is getting at is that you literally don't know what skills you need so so learn be skills motivated. So learn skills and make sure that they're hands-on skills. Right. It turns out not to be very useful to know that Muhammad made the Hijra in 622 AD. I'm sticking with that date. I bet I'm right. <laughs> it's. I, I'm willing. I'm willing to bet. I, I'll if. If it turns out I'm wrong, maybe somebody will write in, and I'll have to send them a bag from my sewing kit or something.
0: I think uh, <laughs> maybe we can look it up after this, and we can both tweet it. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so I think that I think that's kind of what it is. I think that like when we really get down to it, I think part of it is you know the the building of a community so that you know other people who know other skills, and then just sort of like responsibly learning the kind of skills that you that that are not only going to be useful to the people who want to consult with you on stuff but but useful in general like you know you can't uh you can't cut a hazel wand unless you know what a hazel tree looks like and you know where to find it that means learning tree identification and hiking out in the woods to see where hazel trees live um you know you can't uh you know a lot of the a lot of the recipes that you come across in the picatrix and stuff require things like fermentation or require things like knowing specific herbs or being able to identify specific stuff but there's also all this stuff about like tracking the seasons and tracking time which are going to be useful in agriculture you know so there's there's crossover um but uh yeah just learn shit
2: learn shit And not only learn shit, but learn how to talk to people about stuff Mm -hmm. that you need to be, you may need to advise people in the next 30 years on what the right time is for them to leave on their interplanetary cruise to Mars, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: or you may need to advise them on how to get the water wheel at the old mill running and how to build a power loom so that everybody will have enough clothes to wear and you don't actually know which of those two futures is in the offing
0: so learn them and that
2: means that you so learn something about both of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of that's kind of a terrifying
0: future but it's also an exciting one yeah it's easier <laughs> I mean some parts <laughs> of it are easier, right? Like it's it's easier to fix a to fix a uh, sawmill than it is to build a rocket ship.
2: Yes, well it's not rocket surgery to fix a loom, but it's a lot yeah. more complicated than most people would assume. Right. Right. That's true. Especially if you plan on that cloth staying together for more than one season. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Ah, learn how to I mean learn how to extract fibers from plants, I guess, too, because somebody's gonna need to make the thread
2: oh god i know enough about that that i don't i want to leave that one up to somebody else
1: <laughs> well i'm not it
2: <laughs> you're you're in the wrong place yeah you're on the wrong side of the country that's true that's true
0: <laughs> yeah good luck in the future by the way thanks um thanks. i appreciate that. all right so we've covered see you on Mars. oh thanks thanks <laughs> i think it's gonna be a little easier out here because we've got fewer people in general so you know we'll see um we'll see. all right the people around here will need a lot more of my help
2: though.
1: yeah
0: that's true <laughs> okay so we've covered uh we've covered a lot of ground and we've given all of the listeners a list of stuff that they have to do um why don't you uh, tell people where they can find you on the internet in case they want to like um yell at you for stressing them out <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I keep a blog at andrewbwatt.com. I am following Austin on one thing. He wrote a book called 36 Faces, and I'm currently writing my way through an astrology column for a year, creating a 10-day 10 by 10-day 10 explanation of what seems to be happening in the stars and how that might affect your life. The, uh, the other place that you can find me is that I'm Water Mountain Studios on Etsy. And I make things with a sewing machine and put them up for sale there. I have to do some updating on the store. You can also find me on Amazon. I've written some books of poetry that will perhaps help you through those cold, dark winter nights after the last uh, gas station goes out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh,
0: or, order them before that happens, or Amazon. Will yeah, take order them approximately six months. Order to them before
2: that, and order them before that, and make sure to write it down before your Kindle fails. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or before you leave to Mars. I hear the transmission times are very expensive. Oh yeah, even for on Prime customers,
0: <laughs> international Prime.
2: And on Twitter, I'm Andrew B. Watt, at Andrew B. Watt.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Joining me, I guess. And uh, I look forward to whatever terrifying subject we discuss next time. Excellent. I look forward to it. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash